Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first, and their covered wagons, they find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is Michael Lasky. He's a uh, PhD student about to get his PhD, hopefully, at the University of Berkeley, and uh, he's working on some uh, <clears throat> some robotics-related research. So, Mike, how you doing? Uh, doing pretty good, man. Doing good. Yeah. Well, uh, can you just give a little background on yourself and then tell me about the research that you're working on? What's your PhD about? Okay, yeah. So, um, I'm a, a fifth-year PhD student at UC Berkeley. Uh, I came out here by Michigan, uh, where I did my undergrad, grew up in. And uh, when I started my PhD, it was actually right around the time that deep learning um, made very like promising results on ImageNet. So it was about 2013. And a lot of my right. PhD has been looking at, well, how do we take these deep learning results and apply them to robotic manipulation? Uh, manipulation has always been very challenging. Uh, it's one of the hardest things for a robot to do is actually manipulate the physical world. And uh, you can see that because we don't really have that many manipulation products out there right now uh, in terms of robotics. So Why it was is it so hard for a robot to manipulate stuff? Does it tend to crush things or just not be able to grasp them with the right pressure or what, what are the problems it has? Yeah, so it's actually, it's pretty, it's a pretty hard problem because it kind of couples like perception of the world. You have to really understand everything around you. And also physics, where we don't always have good contact models for how things behave under pressure. Um, so it's easier potentially to plan like the motion of a robot in empty space and then uh, like the self-driving car could be, it's easier to control just where a car moves in empty space. Um, versus actually like me interacting with the objects and trying to get them in the right pose. 
um, just because of the models of the world we have are limited. Okay, well, we'll keep going. So you're working on that, and, and what else? Um, yeah, so um, one of the ways that deep learning can be applied to robotic manipulation was this idea of imitation learning. In, in imitation learning, basically, uh, uh, you have some supervisor uh, that could be a human that could show the robot how to do the task. Um, so what's nice about that is humans are really good at manipulation, um, probably one of the best creatures on the planet at it. And by having them show the robot to do, the robot could potentially learn how to just mimic this behavior or kind of generalize that behavior of the motion. Um, and how it works is a human would perform the task and a robot would treat it like a supervised learning problem where every state the human visits would be uh, the input and then every action the human applied would be the control signal. And you would try and learn a mapping between input and control, similar how we would learn uh, in image classification, a map between like image and class label, um, such so as a dog or a cat. Um, so that that's kind of where I started my work was thinking a lot about this problem and how do we build systems to collect data. Um, so does a human provide feedback and sort of teleoperation or uh, remote point and click interfaces? And also, um, what are the best ways to get demonstrations? Um, should we just have the human like passively teleoperate or provide more of a interactive kind of experience with the robot? Well, once a robot watches someone do something, you would think you'd be able to observe how its algorithms change, and then maybe you'd be able to capture that for future robots, wouldn't you? Or is it just a a one-to-one -one correspondence, and once the robot quote-unquote learns, that's it. It's a black box. Yeah, it it depends on how you kind of build the system. That's some of the nuances uh, that you definitely encounter applying these algorithms. So ideally, you'd like it to be more than just a black box where the robot can like learn some more high-level information and transfer it to other robots. Um, but you could also design the system to be very specific to that robot. Um, where you say, I want this one robot to kind of overfit to this one environment it's in. Um, so a lot of times how people kind of model the problem is uh, either one of those spectrums. So some people have more of a black box approach. I'll get in some like VR setup and then teleoperate the robot exactly and then try to learn just that behavior. Or I might do more high level control and then the robot would learn um, more like high level goal states or grasp plans to go to. And then it's low level, like robot specific control would take over to enact those trajectories. I have kind of a basic question. Um, I've been hearing about deep learning and it seems like a really recent breakthrough in AI. What, what is it compared to machine learning or, you know, why is it a recent breakthrough? What does it do? Okay, yeah, that's a good question. So um, commonly in, so it, it's a type of machine learning. So that's definitely not like uh, one or the other. Um, what's interesting about uh, more traditional machine learning is we always, a lot of times when we would do it, we would have to first extract features from our data. So we would look at our data, which could potentially be high dimensional like an image, and then extract certain features um, to reduce the dimensionality of the problem and make learning easier, and then try and get some invariance in those features. Um, deep learning takes the approach of, well, I'm just going to learn both how to, the features that I want to extract and also the uh, classification jointly or the regression jointly. Um, so here you're actually kind of learning an end-to-end -end style, both feature extraction to reduce the dimensionality of the problem and also to predict. Um, people have a lot of like really kind of interesting theories on this is like uh, from an information perspective, how you're kind of like learning to reduce the size of the problem and then also jointly predict. Um, and now I think why uh, we're trying to see this actually come into play now and like why it actually uh, is starting to really work well is because we have a lot um, 
we have a lot bigger data sets and we also have a lot more compute available. Uh, this is a very computationally expensive kind of algorithm to do this joint learning. And with recent advances in GPUs, we actually can do that efficiently. Also, you can potentially overfit a lot. So if you don't have a big data set, it could actually be very, um, it could be very prone to error because it might learn features that are way too specific to your small data sets. So th those are some, kind of the, the trends is bigger data, faster compute. Um, but the cool thing about it is once you learn these features, they can transfer. So we did experiments with our robots on much smaller data sets using pre-trained features and can actually get really cool performance coming out of that. So deep learning sounds like truly unsupervised learning. Is that a fair way to characterize it? Well, you need supervision. Um, so it's kind of, it's not unsupervised because you are, you are feeding it labeled data sets. Um, however, it's basically learning more about the representation of the domain um, than traditional supervised learning, which would use handcrafted features. So what's, um, what are the number one things that you want to accomplish with your PhD research? What activities um, would be most beneficial for a machine or a robot to learn? To grasp things, to carry things? I mean, what, you know. Yeah, I think um, the, the task that I'm most excited about these days, and um, we just built a prototype, is mobile decluttering. Um, so in, in that task, you have a robot on a mobile base. Um, so we have a robot in the lab. It's like a Roomba, but it has an arm on it. And it has to go around the room and actually uh, pick things up and put them in the right spot. Um, that's really cool because it's it's unstructured, so you have to be able to navigate in an environment where you don't have an exact map or um, exact knowledge of where everything is. You have to detect items, and you have to also think about the goal state a lot, like where should the different items in the house go. Um, I think this task is cool. It, it applies to kind of like cleaning up a home, cleaning up areas, and also the the technology needs to make it could be used for a lot of other um, types of robotic tasks. So really just think about this mobile decluttering is definitely um, the thing I'm most excited about right now. That sounds like a really tough task because would the robot sit there first and scan the whole room so it knows not to bump into stuff and look at like 30 different objects and then decide the order to best do it in? Or is it just start with one and kind of goes from there and observes as it goes? Yeah, it's definitely a tough task. I don't think we're, we're close to it yet. Um, the way that we model it is basically the robot would um enter a room and then just try to be, navigate around not collide anything just move forward without collisions and then when it sees an object that it uh would detect out of place it would then um plan a motion for it and then try to put it somewhere else so what have you i mean how far have you gotten have you had a, a robot you program do this go into a room and like put couch couch cushions back on the couch or put dishes away or you know what has it done <laughs> Well, so the robot we have, this is a task that we just started on. Um, so right now we've gotten it to basically, uh, if you put a pile of objects on the floor, it can go through and start like uh, separating them by doing push motions. And once it finds one it wants, it can put it into a bin. Um, so we can work with about four objects right now, four object categories. And uh, they're kind of tools from like a machine shop. The idea here would be decluttering a machine shop. That's pretty cool. So is it working? I mean, how far along are you with it? Uh, we this so this is a relatively new project, but uh, after my PhD, I'm going to be continuing a lot of the ideas. Um, so we're about two weeks in, and uh, it works well. What it does, what it does though, when it um isn't sure what to do, is it actually asks for help. Uh, so it can about like 20% of the time right now, it actually asks a human for help. Um, so it's autonomous 80, and then it's uh 
kind of teleoperated at a very high level, about 20%. Um, and it can be pretty successful when you have this combination. What we're hoping on doing, though, is trying to learn that other 20% and make it completely autonomous one day. Well, how is it succeeding and how is it messing up? <laughs> like, when does it ask for, does it destroy stuff and then ask for help? Or does it, you know, is it, it's funny, I guess it sounds like it has a personality, you know? Is it cautious? Yeah. And it, and it only, it asks for help constantly? Or do you have a setting where it, you know, it's like, shut up and leave me alone and it breaks everything and then asks for help? Yeah, so how we, how we framed asking for help, um, so we have, Basically, what it considers is um, how confident it is and what it thinks um, the object is. So right now, uh, a lot of times when it messes up, it thinks certain objects are other types of objects. Um, for example, it's supposed to put, um, sometimes it ends up putting screwdrivers in the glue drawer uh, or the glue bin because it thinks screwdrivers look like glue. Uh, so when it's unconfident what it's doing um, or when there's a big pile, that's when it starts asking for help because its vision system is trying to fail. And uh, the cool thing is we can actually measure its confidence um, based on some of the more modern neural network architectures. So what happens when it asks for help, its confidence falls below a certain level? Yeah. So, um, and we're looking at, at setting that a little bit more um, intelligently, but when its confidence is below a certain level, it's going to ask for help. And then it queries a remote human on the internet to come in and actually specify where the object is and what class label it is, which it can then use to help plan its grasping. So do you uh, do you find that it can get caught in um, I don't know like in a rat hole where you help it and then it needs more help and more help and more help or once you help it it's back to its operation and it keeps going and it's successful are there things that can happen that can throw it off track where it keeps going off track and can't seem to right itself <laughs> Yeah no I mean um, definitely right now with robotics there's always going to be like um, situations where it can just really fail forever. Um, but, uh, most of the time you can help it and then it's going to go, um, and actually keep doing the task and doing account as another tough state, but it, it's very possible right now with, um, this technology, you can provide help and they could not understand that and, uh, go off. So, um, into kind of a rabbit hole there. Um, but it doesn't it'd be happen funny if you had a, it'd be funny if you had a guilt feature where it starts complaining and says, I can't do this. You can't you do this, you know, and help me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting to kind of like <laughs> punish it more for asking for help so many times. <laughs> well, it would be interesting if you could give it somewhat of a, I mean, it, do you have a feature where it, like you said the confidence will fall below a certain level and it just will ask for help, but can you program it where you have a feature where it'll try it anyway and then learn from what it's doing? You know, like uh, a very confident robot that doesn't ask for help very much or one that asks for help all the time and is very cautious. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good insight. Um, what we want to do, too, is let it kind of explore um, this sort of confidence value. So even when it thinks it's uh, not always sure, it's sort of try out an action and then uh, feel penalty from that. Um, and by trying to kind of optimize this, maybe it can find a better threshold of when it actually is sure or not. Um, so really, uh, what we want to do is be able to balance sort of like exploration so the robot is able to take new decisions and try different things out and figure out where that right, right balance is. What, what would be the goal of punishing, though? I mean, it's not human. It's not going to, like, cry or say please or any of that stuff. Um, so with the, uh, the uh, punishing, it would be, like, um, giving it negative reward. Um, so right now, we measure its performance based on uh, how many times it asked for help and how successful it was. So we don't want it to ask for help too many times because that's going to require, like, a human resource. 
So we wanted to, um, so we try and make it like optimize the sort of reward value of uh, how successful it is and how many times it has to help. So what kind of application would it be used in if once it's successful? I mean, what are the commercial applications that, you know, maybe you've been asked, hey, if you could make this work for XYZ, we'd love it. Yeah, so um, the the task that it's really going after is just, um, you, you can think of it in applications such as, um, uh, the one that we're targeting right now is like decluttering a machine shop. So it could come in after uh, people have been working in some like machine shop for a while and clean it up at, at night. And then you could have a sort of remote call center for those corner cases to actually help assist the robot. Um, another application I'm excited about is assistive robotics. So how could the robot go into a home and actually declutter the home environment to um just make things tidier and uh, extend sort of independence in living? And uh, so I think, yeah, like anytime where you have like um, objects on the floor and you want to pick them up, uh, that's sort of the applications you'd be considered. Um, you could also extend it potentially to like uh, stacking grocery shelves and um, uh, applications such as that order fulfillment where you have to basically uh, pick up items, put them on shelves, take items off shelves and move them around. So what is, I mean, this, this sounds like it combines a lot. It needs computer vision. Um, it needs, you know, like haptic feedback and grasping. I mean, it seems like it's, it requires a ton of skills in order for it to work. Yeah, no, and, that, and that's really why robotics are very challenging is because they're complex systems with a lot of different components. And so, you know, uh, yeah. what did I leave out? What is it? It needs machine vision. It needs, yeah, um, it, I don't know what you call the grasping, but what, you know, what are the elements it needs in your mind to make it work? So it needs, it needs like really strong machine vision, the ability to enter a room and really do semantic scene understanding, uh, grasp planning. So thinking about how do I manipulate objects? How do I uh, encage them in a grasp to originally contact myself, uh, originally fix them to, to their body? Um, the ability to build a map uh, is also it, um, very, you have to have some sort of map of where the room is. Um, you need some way to actually do uh, navigation and uh movement on potentially terrain such as carpet um which can be hard for uh localization purposes so you have to have some base that can actually move around the room and understand where it is um and that could require like our current robot has a lidar based sensor on its base so you have to think about lidar fusion so in some sense you kind of need a lot of the technology of a self-driving car um but then on top of that a lot of the manipulation technology so it, it really builds on a lot of recent work in self-driving cars as well. So the LiDAR maps the room? Is that what it's used for? Yeah, right now it, it, it maps the room in terms of obstacles, and then it also is used to help localize the robot. So when the robot moves forward, it kind of sees how far do these features change, and then that allows it to know where how far did it move in uh, in space. Does it have to rescan the room at a certain frequency? You know, if it picks up an object, now the room's different. And as it moves through the room, you now it's placing the room is different. So how often does it have to like rescan the room once it initially does it? Yeah, a lidar I think scans at a rate about thirty hertz, and we have a separate thread actually processing it and then doing these more low-level calculations. Um, what's interesting is you have a lot of different processes going on interacting with each other on these mobile robots. So when you see it ask for help and fail, what's failing? What's the weakest component of it? Is it the machine vision? It's got to look at all these different kinds of objects, or is it, uh, you know, what, what goes wrong when it goes wrong? Yeah, so the biggest component right now, I would say, is the ability to detect objects in space, the machine vision side. 
Um, and why that is, is because we only trained on machine vision algorithm about 200 labeled data points. So it naturally, it's going to just have some error um, because we didn't have much data. As we scale that up to larger data sets, we might actually see that work better. Um, but while uh, computer vision has made great progress, when you take these object detection networks off the data sets they were trained on, you have to retrain them locally to your data sets, to new instances, and you might not have that much data. So still that retraining step needs uh, a lot of research on how to make that more reliable. Um, the other thing that can go wrong sometimes is precision of the grasp. Uh, so our robot has about two centimeters of error, or I think one centimeter of error. So uh, thinking about grasp robustness is really important. How do I plan grasp so they're robust to that kind of error? Um, so these these are kind of the things that we, we still are thinking about a lot. Um, but the, uh, yeah, so really just object detection and then uh, having robust grasp. So that's some of the challenges that we face. However, if you scale this up to more complex domains where you have um, different, like, texture in your carpet and stuff, there could be other problems with localization and uh, just motion planning on that. Well, if you have, you said the grasp differential is what, one centimeter or two centimeters? Uh, it's about one centimeter, the error in the grasp planning. Well, how much of a force differential does that make, that uh, that much of a difference? Well, it's um really, it, it could be the difference between uh, your hand actually grasping the object in the center or actually uh, missing the object. Um, we, we've been doing experiments trying to grasp Legos, and if you don't approach them in the right direction, you can actually miss the object. What about crushing stuff? Uh, crushing stuff not hasn't been too much of an issue. Um, yeah, I think uh, our, our robots don't grasp things that hard. We have more compliant robots that are human safe. Um, but if you get to like an industrial robot, you might have to worry about that a bit more. All right, so they don't have a problem crushing stuff, but they can miss things and... Can you tighten it up so it's less than a centimeter, or is that really not necessary? Is that enough tolerance? Uh, yeah, so I think it really depends on um, the objects you're manipulating. For a lot of home objects, such as the bottles and kind of the, the things you would naturally throw away, uh, it with a wide enough ripper, you might be okay with that kind of error. But you can definitely tighten it up by really exploring um, the precision in its joints, the precision in its mobile base. The issue is... Um, the cost is kind of a big factor. You want these robots to be cheap enough that people can buy them. So there's always this kind of delicate balance between cost and precision. Well, what about the um, what about the gripper itself? I mean, does it need to look like a hand? Is it just like a nub that pushes things? Is it like a pincer with two paws, or what does it look like? Uh, it actually looks like a pincer. Yeah, um, it's a uh, it's two claw. It's a parallel jaw gripper, so it has basically two parallel plates. They would uh, close together um, on a plane. And, uh, yeah, and uh, a lot of times that's kind of the preferred gripper because um, it's uh, kind of computationally easy to read, reason about and plan for. Uh, things like five-fingered hands are just hard, very high dimensional, and they're hard to do control with. So a lot of times robots would prefer more simple uh, grippers, like a pillow jar. Oh, so the more fingers, the more degrees of freedom and... It's like a trade-off, I guess, right? If you want more yeah, fine exactly. control, you need more fingers, but then it gets so much harder to control it. Yeah, and that's exactly uh, it, the issue. And for a lot of times, we just want robots to pick things up right away. I mean, that's the first step. And uh, parallel jaws can accomplish that. So it's a really nice trade-off between computationally and what we want robots to just uh, be able to do for the first step. But more advanced things like cooking and really in-hand manipulation, 
uh, obviously are pretty limited, but we might be kind of far off from those tasks right now. Well, what about if a robot had multiple appendages and they were used for different tasks? You know, some just a bumper would be fine. Some is a pincer. Some you need like, you know, a three-pronged hand thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, there's actually a, a postdoc in the lab working on a tool changer for a way to uh, basically have the robot come over and change the tools um, to different appendages for different tasks. Uh, I think deciding when different tools are needed would be a very interesting problem right now in robotics. Yeah, this is complicated. The more I ask you, Matt, the more complicated it seems. It's a really hard project you're working on. Yeah, I mean, robotics is um, it's definitely it's very clear vision, but it's very hard to actually really get there. Um, these systems are really complex and uh, we're just beginning to get prototypes online um, that can do some of this more unstructured stuff. Are there any other senses besides vision that would help a robot navigate? I don't know, like the electric field around stuff or the temperature of stuff or, or is that not really uh, necessary for the stuff you're working on? Not for us. I've seen actually a lot of cool work using ultrasound. Um, so to actually like uh, basically use almost like sonar sensors for navigation. Um, and then uh, LiDAR is also a really great sensor as well. Um, and uh, yeah, also um, for more outdoors robotics, things like uh, GPS is still uh, a great tool for navigation. And your robots don't have to go up or down any stairs, right? That would make it probably even uh, much harder, right? Oh, that would make it a lot harder. Yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate for that. Um, but I think uh, when you look at some of the stuff coming out of Boston Dynamics, uh, there's definitely robots that can do stairs these days. Um, but that that's a really interesting uh, place to explore is, like, how to have that legged locomotion uh, go up and down stairs. Yeah, well, I've seen they have, like, a, a robot that looks like a dog with multiple legs that they try to kick over and it could ride itself and ones that go up and down stairs. But I don't know if it could do any of the things that your robot can do, but I guess it'll, I mean, do you, do you see this again? This is, I guess this is my biggest question is once a robot learns, you know, how to grasp stuff and how to rearrange tools and clean up a room. I mean, how portable is that skill? And will this become like a modular set of libraries of skills that, you think in the future people will piece together to make a, a much more capable robot? Yeah, yeah. I think um, it could definitely be very modular. So a lot of times our software actually operates the stack of um, we just assume you can put your gripper in a fixed position. And uh, somebody who's making a, a mobile base with wheels or a mobile base with legs can also just operate at that API level. So being agnostic to this. Um, so there, there's definitely potential for um, a legged robot to be swapped out for the mobile wheel base that my robot currently has and um, vice versa. So I think uh, we're definitely going to see a lot more um, software command line, like software libraries and modularity and mm -hmm. API design um, to support sort of this like ecosystem. And uh, that's going to be really exciting to see uh, just a huge, much more interest in software development for robotic systems. Okay. Well, very good. Um, so uh, what's what's going to happen with you from here? You got about a month left, you said, in your PhD, and then um, where are you moving on to, and what are you going to work on next? Yeah. So um, I'll be uh, just trying to finish up my thesis, uh, get everything done. Um, there's a few like theoretical problems I'm still trying to figure out. Um, once I get done, I'll actually be joining uh, the makers of the robot I'm working with now is Toyota. So I'll actually be uh, joining a team there 
uh, working on similar problems. Um, so I'm very excited about that. And oh, do you know uh, what you're going to be working on, or can you say, or is it proprietary? Um, yeah, I think at a high level, it's going to be um, it's thinking about mobile manipulation for assistive home care. Uh, there's a big push um, to really see how far can we take these robots within the next five, ten years. And uh, doing a lot more kind of scaling up some of the experiments I was talking about. Um, but the, I, yeah, I, I think um, exact details, I don't know if I can really specify too much. <laughs> oh, that's fine. That's great. Yeah. All right, Mike. Well, very good. Um, if people want to contact you and ask you about your research or, or any of that stuff, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Um, email is the best. Uh, so I think you guys have my email address. Well, I can give it to you. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind, just restate it. And we can put it in. Okay. Uh, yeah. So email is the best way to contact uh, Lasky M D uh, L L A S K E Y M D at Berkeley E D U. Okay. All right. Very good. Okay. Well, Mike, I appreciate you being on, and uh, you know, I'm looking forward to a robot cleaning up my room in the future. But I don't have to do it. <laughs> yeah. One day. All right. Well, it was nice talking to you, and uh, yeah, have a have a good day. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but we'll showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. You have been listening to Almost Here. Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.